Then one of them asked when the jury should sit, and some other of them answered, On Monday. P.C. Can you write? M.H. Yes. P.C. Will you subscribe what you have said? M.H. No. They bade the clerk set down that she could write, but refused to subscribe. P.C. Do you desire to converse with one of your ministers? M.H. What ministers? P.C. Mr. Riddell. M.H. I will have none of your ministers. Footnote. Cloud of Witnesses, pages 95 to 97. End footnote. For the opinions expressed in these answers, the government were resolved to take the life of this inoffensive girl. But as the confession of her holding such opinions could only become judicial and be used in judgment against her when made before the lords of the judiciary, she was next in conformity with the usual practice brought before them on the 6th of December, 1680, to undergo a similar examination. On her being brought before them and examined, the answers she gave were substantially the same as those she had given when examined before the Privy Council, and the following is the substance of her answers as drawn up by the clerk of the Judiciary Court and subscribed by the Lords as her confession. Quote, Edinburgh, December 6, 1680 In the presence of the Lords, Justice Clerk, and Commissioners of Justiciary, sitting in judgment, compared Marion Harvey, prisoner, and being examined, adheres to the fourth article of the Fanatics' New Covenant, the same being read to her, and disowns the King in his authority and the authority of the Lords of Justiciary, and adheres and advised at the treasonable declaration admitted at Sanquihar and approves of the same, and says, It was lawful to kill the Archbishop of St. Andrews when the Lord raised up instruments for that effect, and that he was as miserable and perjured a wretch as ever betrayed this Kirk of Scotland, declares that ministers brought them up to these principles, and now they have left them, and that she has heard Mr. John Welsh and Mr. Riddell preach up these principles she now owns, and blesses God she ever heard them preach so, for her soul has been refreshed by them. She approves of Mr. Cargill's excommunicating the king, declares she can write, but refuses to sign the same. Maitland, David Balfour, James Falconer, Roger Hogg. End quote. Footnote. Records of the Justiciary Court. End footnote. On the sole ground of this confession, an indictment was drawn up against her, and she was brought to trial on the 17th of January, 1681. Tried on the same indictment with Isabel Allison, she was charged with the same crimes, with the addition that she had, quote, most reasonably approved of the ex- execrable excommunication used by Mr. Donald Cargill against his sacred so- sovereign at Torwood in September last, and likewise owned and approved of the killing of the Archbishop of St. Andrews as lawful, declaring that he was as miserable a wretch as ever betrayed the, Church- the Kirk of Scotland, end quote. Her indictment having been read, she was asked if she pleaded guilty to the charges it contained, to which she answered in the affirmative. They next successively read the Sanquihar Declaration in the Queensferry paper, asking her at the close of the reading of each paper if she owned it, to which she answered that she did. She then protested before the court that they had nothing to say against her as to matter of fact, but only that she owned Christ and his truth, to which they made no reply 
but called the jury, who, as we have seen before, showed considerable reluctance to appear. She offered no objections to any of the jury, but on their taking their places she addressed them in these words, quote, Now beware what you are doing, for they have nothing to say against me, but only for owning Jesus Christ and his persecuted truths, for you will get my blood upon your heads. End quote. The court then proceeded with the evidence against her, but the only proof which the prosecutor, his majesty's advocate, could adduce was her own confession before the lords of justiciary. This confession, as they had taken it down, was accordingly read, and being asked if she adhered to it, she objected to the clause which represented her as having said that the ministers had taught her these principles, observing that what she said was that it was Christ by his word who had taught her but she adhered to the rest of her her confession as it was read. The king's advocate then addressed the jury. He told them, as has been stated before, that much dealing had been employed with her and Isabel Allison, and that ministers had been sent to them in prison to endeavor, if possible, to reclaim them, but that every effort had proved unavailing. Quote, We are not concerned with you and your ministers, end quote, said Marion sharply. The advocate, turning to her, replied, quote, It is not for religion that we are pursuing you, but for the treason. End quote. Quote, it is for religion that you are pursuing me. End quote, she instantly retorted. Quote, and I am of the same religion that you are all sworn to be of. I am a true Presbyterian in my judgment. End quote. On the conclusion of the advocate's address, the jury retired for their consultation, but soon returned to the court and delivered their verdict, unanimously finding Marion Harvey guilty, quote, conformed to her confession of adherence to the fourth article of the Fanatics' New Covenant and to the Declaration at Sanquihar and to the Bond of Combination, but as actor and receiver of these rebels, they find it not proven, end quote. The Lords delayed the pronouncing of the sentence upon her until Friday at twelve o'clock, being the twenty-first of the current month. On the minute of the day being read, she said, quote, I charge you before the tribunal of God, as ye shall answer there, for ye have nothing to say against me but for my owning the, perse- the persecuted gospel. End quote. On the twenty-first, she was again brought before the court, to receive her sentence, which was that she, quote, be taken to the grass market of Edinburgh upon Wednesday next, the 26th instant, betwixt two and four o'clock in the afternoon, and there to be hanged on, the, on a gibbet till she be dead, and all her lands, heritages, goods, and gear whatsoever to be as cheat and inbrought to our sovereign lord's use, which was pronounced for doom. End quote. Footnote. Records of the Justiciary Court. Cloud of Witnesses, page 97. End footnote. During the whole of the proceedings now detailed, Marion betrayed no symptoms of wavering hesitation or timidity. And now, when her days on earth were numbered, when she had only five brief days to live, she maintained to the last her Christian fortitude. The testimony of her conscience that she had done nothing worthy of death and that she was in reality doomed to die on the scaffold for her adherence to the truths of Christ was to her a source of great satisfaction. In her dying testimony, which she left behind her, dated, quote, 
from the toll booth of Edinburgh, the woman house, on the east side of the prison, January 21, 1681, Christian friends and acquaintances, I being to lay down my life on Wednesday next, January 26th, I thought fit to let it be known to the world, wherefore I lay down my life, and to let it be seen that I die not as a fool, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. No, it is for adhering to the truths of Jesus Christ, and avowing him to be king in Zion, and head of his church, and the testimony against the ungodly laws of men and their robbing Christ of his rights and usurping his prerogative royal, which I durst not but testify against. End quote. Nor was she deprived of those heavenly consolations which have so often sustained the soul of the martyr and made him triumph over death. The presence of a reconciled God and the peace and comfort which he spoke to her soul divested death of its terrors and inspired her with a holy willingness and cheerfulness to surrender her life in testimony of her love to him and his cause. I desire, says she in the same document, to bless and magnify the Lord for my lot and may say he hath brought me to the wilderness to allure me there and speak comfortably to my soul. It was but little of him I knew when I came to prison but now he has said to me, Because he lives, I shall live also. And he has told me, I am he that blotteth out thine iniquity for my own name's sake. Kind has he been to me since he brought me out to witness for him. I have never sought anything from him that was for his glory since I came to prison, but he granted me my desire. For the most part I have found him in everything that hath come in my way ordering it himself for his own glory. And now I bless him that thoughts of death are not terrible to me. He hath made me as willing to lay down my life for him as ever I was willing to live in the world. And now ye that are his witnesses, be not afraid to venture on the cross of Christ, for his yoke is easy and his burden light. For many times I have been made to think strange what made folks cast at the cross of Christ that hath been so light to me, that I have found no burden of it at all. He bore me and it both. Now let not the frowns of men nor their flatteries put you from your duty. It is my grief that I have not been more faithful for my master Christ. All his dealings with me have been in love and in mercy. His corrections have been all in love and free grace. O free love, I may say I am a brand plucked out of the fire. I am a limb of the devil plucked out from his fireside. Oh, I am made to wonder and admire at his condescending love. End quote. And she concludes with these words, quote, Now farewell, lovely and sweet scriptures, which were I my comfort in the midst of all my difficulties. Farewell, faith. Farewell, hope. Farewell, wanderers who have been comfortable to my soul in the hearing of them commend Christ's love. Farewell, brethren. Farewell, sisters. Farewell, Christian acquaintances. Farewell, sun, moon, and stars. And now, welcome, my lovely and heartsome Christ Jesus, into whose hands I commit my spirit throughout all eternity. I may say few and evil have the days of the years of my pilgrimage been, I being about twenty years of age. End quote. Footnote. Cloud of Witnesses, pages 98 to 101. End footnote. 
There is one thing in the dying testimony of this female which we could wish had been modified, and that is the paragraph in which she leaves her blood upon the tyrant on the throne, upon the Duke of York, who was sitting in the council the first day on which she was examined, and upon all others who were concerned in her death, whom she particularly names. This was done by others of the Cameronian martyrs, and it was done, we believe, not in a spirit of revenge, but simply to impress, if possible, upon their murderers a conviction of their guilt, and to awaken them to repentance. Footnote. The words of Jeremiah in his address to the princes of Judah, chapter 26, 15, have been adduced in vindication of these martyrs on this head. End footnote. In proof of this, we may quote the testimony of a very intelligent gentleman who had opportunities of being very much among the Cameronian party who suffered between the years 1680 and 1685 and who conversed with most, if not all, who suffered till August 1685, that of Mr. Gray of Christen. And his testimony is the more valuable from his having belonged not to the Cameronians but to the moderate Presbyterians. In a letter to Wadrill, he says, quote, As to their leaving their blood upon their enemies in general, or upon particular persons accessory to their trouble, I could never understand that they meant more by it than the fastening a conviction upon a brutish persecuting generation who vainly justified themselves as acting by law, and inferred that not they but the legislature were answerable if any injustice was done. End quote. Footnote. Wadrow's History, Volume 3, page 214. End footnote. This explains the ground upon which Marion Harvey and others left their blood upon their persecutors, and it amply vindicates them from acting under the impulse of a revengeful spirit. Something more, however, is required of the Christian than the mere absence of revenge toward his enemies. He is bound from the heart to forgive them. We do not affirm that this female martyr and other Cameronian martyrs did not forgive their persecutors. We are persuaded of the contrary. They knew the New Testament too well not to know that forgiveness of enemies is an imperative Christian duty, and they possessed too much of the Christian spirit not to exercise it. But they erred in not being sufficiently forward to express this feeling and in not giving it prominence in their dying testimonies. If, instead of the clause to which we are now objecting, they had, sustain, had substituted a clause cordially forgiving their persecutors, it would have been more in harmony with the precepts of the New Testament, and it would have been more like Jesus, who on the cross showed how intensely forgiving his heart was when he prayed his Holy Father to forgive his murderers and urged in their behalf the only extenuating plea of which their crime admitted, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Nor is it unworthy of notice that they had taken this, that had they taken this course, they would have deprived their enemies of an occasion which they eagerly laid hold on, and over which they gloated, of charging them falsely indeed, but still with some degree of color, of being baited into savageness and stubbornness, of being actuated by vindictive feelings, and of mistaking these feelings for emotions of piety. On the day of her execution, Marion not only retained her composure, but experienced the utmost joy in the anticipation of future felicity. When coming out of the tollbooth door to go to the council house, whence she was to be conducted to the place of execution, she said to some friends attending her, 
in a tone of heavenly joy and ecstasy, at once surprising and delightful to them. Quote, Behold, I hear my beloved saying unto me, Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. End quote. In the council house, a base and heartless attempt was made by Bishop Patterson to disturb her tranquility and the tranquility of her fellow sufferer in the same cause, Isabel Allison. This man, who had an active hand in bringing them to the scaffold, and who, with a meanness and wanton cruelty worth of a, worthy of a persecutor, had brought a curate with him to the council house for the express purpose of annoying them, said to Marion Harvey, quote, Marion, you said you would never hear a curate. Now you shall be forced to hear one, end quote, upon which he called on the curate to pray. This cruel insult, offered to them when placed in circumstances calculated to excite the deepest commiseration, was met by the sufferers with becoming spirit. They made no reply to the bishop, but as soon as the curate began to pray, Marion said to her fellow martyr, quote, Come, Isabel, let us sing the twenty-third psalm, end quote, which they accordingly did, Marion repeating the psalm line by line without book, which drowned the curate's voice and confounded both him and the bishop. When they were brought to the scaffold, a second attempt was made to harass their feelings and disturb their composure in their last moments by one of the prelatic curates of the city who came to pray with the five women condemned to be executed at the same time for child murder. This man, who appears to have had neither correct views of religion nor humane feelings, flattered these five murderers with the hope of heaven, though they had given no evidences of repentance, while he vehemently railed on our two martyrs and remorselessly told them that they were on the road to damnation. But they remained unmoved. Quote, the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, kept their hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. End quote. On the scaffold, Marion sung the 84th Psalm and read the third chapter of Malachi, after which she shortly addressed the vast crowd of spectators. Quote, I am come here today, she said, for avowing Christ to be head of his church and king in Zion. Oh, seek him, sirs, seek him, and ye shall find him. I sought him and found him. I held him and would not let him go. End quote. Then she briefly narrated the manner in which she was apprehended and the leading questions put to her by the privy council with the answer she returned. Quote, they asked me if I adhered to the papers gotten at the ferry. I said I did own them and all the rest of Christ's truths. If I would have denied any of them, my life was in my offer. But I durst not do it. No, not for my soul. Ere I wanted an hour of his presence, I had rather died ten deaths. I durst not speak against him, lest I should have sinned against God. I adhere to the Bible and confession of faith, catechisms and covenants which are according to this Bible. End quote. But in her dying speech she chiefly spoke of God's love to her and in commendation of free grace. Quote, Much of the Lord's presence, says she, have I enjoyed in prison, and now I will bless the Lord the snare is broken and we are escaped. End quote. When she came to the foot of the ladder, she engaged in prayer, and on going up the ladder, she exclaimed, quote, Oh, my fair one, my lovely one, come away. End quote. And sitting down upon it, she said, quote, I am not come here for murder, for they have no matter of fact to charge me with, 
but only my judgment. I am about twenty years of age. At fourteen or fifteen, I was a hearer of the curates and indulged. And while I was a hearer of these, I was a blasphemer and Sabbath-breaker, and a chapter of the Bible was a burden to me. But since I heard this persecuted gospel, I durst not blaspheme nor break the Sabbath, and the Bible became my delight. End quote. These were her last words. For on her having uttered them, the hangman at the orders of the provost cast her over. Her body, as a mark of reprobation, was buried, it is probable, in the Greyfriars Churchyard, Edinburgh, along with the body of her fellow martyr, Isabel Allison. Footnote. The following notices of Marion Harvey and Isabel Allison, written by a contemporary belonging to the government party, may be interesting to the reader. Quote, 26 January 1681. They were hanged at Edinburgh. There were hanged at Edinburgh two women of ordinary rank, for their uttering treasonable words and other principles and opinions contrary to all our government. The one was named Janet Isabel Allison, a Perth woman, the other Marion Harvey from Borostanus. They were of Cameron, Cameron's factor, bigot and sworn enemies to the king and the bishops, of the same stamp with Raphaelet, Skeen, Stuart, and Potter, of whom Supra, page 4, at Seek where we debate how far men, for women are scarce to be honored with that martyrdom, as they think it, are to be punished capitally for their bare perverse judgment without acting. Some thought that the threatening to drown them privately in the North Loch, without giving them the credit of a public suffering, would have more effectually reclaimed them, nor any arguments which were used, and the bringing them to a scaffold but disseminates the infection. However, the women proved very obstinate, and for all the pains taken would not once acknowledge the king to be their lawful prince, but called him a perjured, bloody man. At the stage, one of them told so long as she followed and heard the curate she was a swearer, Sabbath-breaker, and with much aversion read the scriptures, but found much joy upon her spirit since she followed the conventicle preachers. There were five other miserable women executed with them for an infant murder, See with what wonderful patience most execrable heretics suffer. In Baker's Chronicle, in the reign of King Henry II, page 58, and of Henry III, page 89. End quote. Fountainhall's History, page 26 and 27. End footnote. In the spot appropriated as a burying place for the most flagrant criminals, but whatever indignities were put upon her mortal part, her spirit brought out of great tribulation was doubtless put in possession of that exceeding great reward reserved for those who overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony and who love not their lives unto the death. Helen Johnston Lady Graydon Helen Johnston was the daughter of the well-known Sir Archibald Johnston, Lord Warriston, who acted so prominent a part in the civil and ecclesiastical transactions of his day, and who at last fell a martyr to the cause of civil and religious freedom. Lord Warriston was not less distinguished for personal piety than for public patriotism. An anecdote which strikingly, strikingly illustrates how completely, in the exercise of prayer, his mind was abstracted from 
surrounding objects and concentrated on the greater object of religious worship has been preserved by Wadrow. Quote, Mrs. Lilia Stewart, end quote, says that indefatigable memorialist, quote, tells me that my Lord Warriston was very frequently in her father's house, Sir James Stewart's, and when he came before dinner, he, Sir James, usually desired him to pray in the family, and he made no more ceremony to do it than one minister would do in another's house. But it was remarked of him that in prayer he was the most staid and swallowed up in the work of any man in his time. He heard or noticed nothing when praying. One day in his family, his lady being indisposed, she fell into a swarf, that is, a swoon or fainting fit, in the room beside him, and continued some time in it. And the servants, observing it, lifted her up and laid her in bed. All this was done beside him, and he knew nothing of it till all was over and duty ended. End quote. Footnote. Wadrow's Analecta, Volume 2, page 145. End footnote. Like the Marquis of Argyle, he may be said to have fallen a victim to the revenge of Charles II, who never forgave him for the fidelity with which, on one occasion, he reproved him for his vices. Writing in January 1713, Wadrow says, quote, My author, Mr. James Sterling, Minister of Barony, Paris, Glasgow, has it from Mr. Oliphant, who was my Lord Warriston's chap- chaplain at the time, that one day he told Mr. Oliphant he was going to use freedom with the king. Mr. Oliphant dissuaded him from it, but he took his cloak about him and went away and did use freedom with him. The king seemed to take all well and gave him very good words, calling him Good Lord Warriston, but bore a rooted grudge at him after that and prosecuted it to his death. End quote. Footnote. Rogers Analecta, Volume 2, page 145. End footnote. His enemies, like bloodhounds, dogged his footsteps on the continent, and succeeding their object brought him home to be tried, condemned, and executed as a traitor. Quote, His natural temper was just, generous, self-denying, insomuch that he left behind him but a very small provision for a family of thirteen children, though for many years he had been entrusted with the whole government of Scotland. End quote. Footnote. Life of Bishop Burnett by his son in Burnett's History of His Own Times, Volume 6, page 235. The bishop's mother was sister to Lord Warriston. His father was an Episcopalian, but his mother, who was very eminent for her piety and virtue, was a warm zealot for the Presbyterian discipline. Her education that way had been very strict. Wadra's Analecta, Volume 2, page 145. End footnote. Thus, the subject of this notice enjoyed the inestimable blessing of a sound Christian education and of a holy example under her father's roof. From her cradle, she had been surrounded with the genial influences of piety as well as trained to the love of liberty. With the principles of the Second Reformation Church, all her feelings and early associations were inseparably linked. The summary overthrow of the Presbyterian Church by the government of Charles II and the grinding oppression by which it was attempted to force the consciences of men and women to act in matters of religion and in conformity with the wishes of the monarch, she could not then, with such impressions and sentiments, but regard with aversion and distrust. 
and this aversion and distrust must have been aggravated from the relentless cruelty with which, from the moment of the restoration, her father was persecuted, till he was put to death as a traitor on the scaffold. In the summer of 1659, Miss Johnston was married to Mr. George Hume, or Home, proprietor of an estate called Graydon in the south of Scotland. Footnote. In Acts of Scottish Parliament, Volume 6, page 85, he is designated an heritor of the parish of Earlston. End footnote. Hence, according to the courtesy of those times, he was generally called Graydon, and his wife, Lady Graydon. Their marriage contract is dated 10th May, 1659. In this contract, made with the consent of several persons therein, specified on both sides, Mr. Hume, quote, in contemplation of the marriage then contracted, bound and obliged himself, his heirs, executors, and successors to provide and secure the said Helen Johnston, his future spouse, during all the days of her lifetime, in case she should survive him, in the sum of two thousand merks, Scots, yearly, free of all burdens whatsoever, and that out of the first and readiest of his fortunes. Footnote. Commissary Records of Edinburgh, 16th December, 1691. Mr. Hume was a man of very considerable wealth. At the time of his death, the debts owing to him were 121,302 pounds, 5 shillings, 10 pence, Scots, and his free gear, the debts due by himself, being deducted, was 105,302 pounds, Scots. End footnote. Mr. Hume, like his wife, was a warm supporter of the principles of the Covenanters and also suffered in their defense. In 1678, being in Northumberland, he was made prisoner in Crockholm, a village upon the English border, by a party of English soldiers who were in search of Scottish nonconformists, several of whom had taken shelter from persecution in Northumberland. He was carried first to Lord Hume and thence to Hume Castle. His apprehension was the occasion of the scuffle in which Thomas Kerr of Hayhope, whose elegy was written by Colonel William Cleland and is inserted in Naphtali, was killed by Colonel Struthers' party. How long he was kept prisoner is uncertain. We, however, find him among the insurgents at Bothwell Bridge in June 1679. Footnote. McCree's Memoirs of Veach, etc., page 463. End footnote. His name appears in a list of persons who had been in the late rebellion contained in a proclamation of the Privy Council dated June 26, discharging all His Majesty's subjects, whether men or women, to assist harbor, reset, correspond with, hide, or conceal the said rebels and traitors under the pain of treason. Footnote. Wadrow's History, Volume 3, page 115. End footnote. He did not long survive, having died in October that year. Footnote. Commissary Records of Edinburgh, 16th December, 1691. End footnote. It was not till 1684 when nearly twenty-four years of misrule and oppression had passed over our ill-fated country, that we meet with the name of Lady Graydon as a sufferer in the cause of presbytery. But, but there is no reason to believe that she had not at an earlier period become obnoxious to the government on account of her religious principles. The severity with which she was then treated seems rather like the punishment inflicted on an old offender 
from the punishment inflicted on one who had offended only for the first time. The primary instrument of her oppression was Henry Kerr of Graydon, who in 1684 held the office of Sheriff Depute of Teviotdale and who recklessly imposed the most exorbitant fines on such gentlemen and ladies in his bounds as patronized the cause of nonconformity. Footnote. Wadrow's History, Volume 4, page 52. So reckless was he in imposing fines that even the government, rapacious as it was, found it necessary from the complaints made against him to institute inquiries as to his proceedings. On the 7th of November, 1684, the Privy Council ordained one of their clerks, Mr. Colin Mackenzie, to write to him the following letter, summoning him to appear before them. Quote, Sir, there have been several su- suspensions, diligences, and petitions given into the council by persons fined by you as Sheriff Deputy of Roxborough, and the council finding it necessary before they proceed to consider thereof that you be present to vindicate your procedure, there being very much alleged against the legality thereof, and which they have reason to rather reason the rather to suspect, since you, being cited to have compared before them, have neglected to do so, and therefore they have commanded me to require you in their name to attend upon the first Thursday of December next peremptory, and to bring along with you the decrees and sentences pronounced by you against persons within your shire, guilty of irregularities and disorders, and the grounds and warrants thereof as also your procurator, fiscal, clerk, and officers of court, or any other executors of your summons, precepts, or warnings to be considered by the council, and herein you are not to fail, as you will be answerable at your peril. I am affectionate friend and servant, Colin Mackenzie, Register of Acts of Privy Council. End footnote. By this unscrupulous man, she was fined in 26,000 and odd pounds Scots, as we learn from the report of the Committee for Public Affairs given into the Council September 10, 1684. In that report, it is also stated that he had fined Lady Greenhead, footnote, the Lady of Sir William Kerr of Greenhead, end footnote, in the sum of 16,000 and odd pounds Scots but that the committee found reason to to assist execution as to her. Footnote. Execution was assisted as to her in consequence of a petition which her husband, Sir William Kerr, presented to the council, desiring that as, quote, the decree was pronounced in absence and that the sum is very exorbitant, his lady might be reponed to her oath and execution in the meantime assisted. End quote. Register of Acts of Privy Council, 10th September, 1684. End footnote. The Council approved of the report. Footnote. Wadrow's History, Volume 4, page 52. End footnote. The decree against Lady Graydon not having been preserved, we are unable precisely to state the charges against her which it contained. But we cannot be far from the truth in supposing that, like the decrees against ladies in similar circumstances, it charged her with deserting the public ordinances in her own parish church, with haunting and frequenting rebellious field conventicles, with harboring and resetting rebels, etc., to the great scandal of religion and contempt of the government. As the fine imposed upon her, and with the approbation of the government, was a very heavy one, 
much heavier than that imposed upon Lady Greenhead, or indeed upon any other person in that part of the country, it is evident that she was a marked person, and there is little doubt that this severity was prompted by the malignant hatred which these wicked rulers cherished toward the memory of her father. As James the Sixth believed that in the whole race of the Knoxes and Welshes there lived the germ of enmity to bishops, so the persecutors during the reigns of his grandsons seemed to have equally believed that the essence of presbytery had been so concentrated in Archbishop Johnston of Warriston as to taint with an inveterate hostility to prelacy the whole of his race. But our chief object in introducing this lady to the notice of the reader is to give a specimen of the Christian sympathy and heroism which ladies often displayed in those trying times under the sufferings of their near and dear relatives in the cause of religion and liberty. The part which she acted toward Robert Bailey of Jerviswood, who was her cousin German, and also her brother-in-law, footnote, Bailey's mother was sister to Lord Warriston, and he was married to one of Lord Warriston's daughters. His wife was a lady worth, worthy of her lineage. Some ascribed his disaffection to the government to her influence over him. Quote, his marrying Johnston of Warriston's daughter, end quote, says Fountain Hall, quote, first alienated his mind from the government, end quote. Historical Notes, Volume 2, page 594. It may here be stated that Bailey had a sister who was married to the celebrated Mr. Andrew Gray, son to Mr. William, to Sir William Gray, Lord Provost of Edinburgh, and minister of the Outer High Church, Glasgow. Mr. Gray was licensed 1653, ordained on the 3rd of November that year, and died in January 1656. His relict afterward became the wife of Mr. George Hutchison, one of the ministers of Edinburgh at the Restoration, and afterward indulged minister at Irvine. Bailey had another sister who was married to Mr. James Kirkton, one of the ministers of Edinburgh after the Revolu Revolution. Wadros Analecta, Volume 1, page 168. End footnote. During his sickness when in prison, and at the time of his trial and execution, is worthy of all praise. Robert Bailey of Jerviswood, than whom the martyrology of the persecution does not embrace a more excellent man, was descended on the mother's side from our illustrious reformer John Knox, his mother having been the granddaughter of the reformer. Footnote. McCree's Life of Knox, 5th edition, volume 2, pages 356 and 357. End footnote. From boyhood he had experienced the power of religion. He had been heard to say that God had begun to work upon him when he was about ten years of age, and that Christ crucified had been his daily study and constant delight. To great natural parts, extensive information and dignity of manner, he added gentleness of disposition and calm benevolence combined with warm zeal for the Protestant religion and incorruptible integrity. Footnote. Bodro says that he had a sort of majesty in his face and stateliness in his carriage. Analecta, Volume 3, page 78. End footnote. By the unprincipled government of his day, he had all along been regarded with suspicion and distrust, and at last they found a pretext for taking away his life. Being in London at the time of the discovery of the Rye House Plot in 1683, footnote, he had gone up to London on the business of the Carolina Settlement. 
the number of Scottish gentlemen having in consequence of the intolerable oppression at home projected a settlement in Carolina in America where such of their countrymen as chose to emigrate might enjoy that freedom of conscience which there was no prospect of their enjoying in Scotland. They sent commissioners to London, among whom was Bailey in the close of the year 1682 to deal with the government about that matter. End footnote. Being in London at the time of the discovery of the Rye House Plot in 1683, he and several other Scotch gentlemen at London were made prisoners on suspicion of being concerned in that plot. Bailey had indeed attended some meetings held in London by several English and Scotch patriots of rank and influence for the purpose of concerting measures for delivering their country from tyranny and preventing the Duke of York, who was a professed papist, from succeeding to the throne in the event of his brother's death. But he never dreamed of accomplishing this end, desirable as it was, by murdering the king and the Duke of York, which was falsely given out by the government as the great object of these meetings. Footnote. Bailey and his Scotch friends had, in fact, broken off all connection with the English conspirators before the conspiracy was discovered, convinced that from the want of unity of view, spirit, and decision it could not succeed, nor had they ever matured any plan of their own. Carstairs' State Papers, pages 10 to 14. End footnote. He and his Scotch fellow prisoners, footnote, these were Sir Hugh Campbell of Cessnock and Sir George Campbell, his son, Sir William Muir of Rowland and William Muir, his son, John Crawford of Crawfordland, William Fairley of Brunsfield, Alexander Monroe of Beancrofts, William Spence, Robert Murray, John Hepburn, William Carstairs, Register of Acts of Privy Council, 5th September 1683. He and his Scotch fellow prisoners were, in the end of October 1683, sent down from London to Scotland, and on their arrival at Leith, they were conducted to the toll booth of Edinburgh. Bailey continued to languish in prison till, being tried for high treason, he was brought in guilty by a packed jury and condemned to the gallows. It was during these his last sufferings that Lady Graydon displayed in, in the part which she acted toward Bailey, whom she highly respected and honored for the excellence of his Christian character, that active sympathy, that self-sacrificing spirit, and that noble heroism to which we have referred. For a considerable period previous to his martyrdom, his rigorous imprisonment had so undermined his health that he was, to all appearance, in a dying condition. In these circumstances he found in this lady a friend indeed. To her he owed that solace and support which kind and unremitting attentions administer under the pain, anxiety, languor, and fears which always attend sickness, and which would especially attend it in his case when he was confined to a prison and when his life was thirsted after by the unrelenting malice of his enemies. It was about the month of July, 1684, that his illness assumed a dangerous form. To his lady and friends this was a cause of great anxiety and alarm. It would have been highly gratifying to her had she been allowed to remove him for a time to her own chambers. But though disease was apparently hurrying him to the grave, she could not prevail upon the lords of the Privy Council to listen so far to the voice of pity as relentingly to allow him to be removed from prison, for they were determined not to forego their hold of a victim whom they so deeply hated, 
and whose valuable estate would, when forfeited, be so rich a prize. Being then unable to obtain for him a temporary release, she was very desirous that in his present condition he might have a constant attendant in prison. Gladly would she have devoted herself with all the tenderness of her faithful heart of, to the office of nursing him in his sickness, and her presence would doubtless have been more agreeable to him than that of any other friend. But for this office the infirm state of her own health unfitted her. Her sister, Lady Graydon, however, a woman of active habits and a generous and exalted mind, engaged with the greatest pleasure should the Privy Council grant permission to attend the sickbed of her cousin and brother-in-law. Accordingly, she presented a petition to the Council, praying that this permission might be granted her. The Council, upon inquiry, finding that Bailey was dangerously ill, allowed her, in answer to her petition, to attend him, on condition of her remaining a close prisoner with him. The Act of Council is as follows, quote, Edinburgh, August 14, 1684. The Lords of His Majesty's Privy Council, having considered an address made by Helen Johnston, Lady Graydon, supplicating that she might be made close prisoner with the Laird of Jerviswood, to wait upon him, he being at present in a sick and dangerous condition, with the report of the Lord President of the Session and Justice Clerk, who were ordered to visit him, bearing that they found him in a very dangerous and sickly condition, do allow the said Lady Graydon to be close prisoner with the said Jerviswood, and appoint a macer of counsel to take her immediately to that room within the prison of Edinburgh, where the said Jerviswood is now prisoner, and appoint the keepers of the toll booth before she enter the said room, to take narrow inspection that she have no letters or papers upon her body, and if she have, that they secure the same, and after she has entered the said room, ordain the four said keepers to keep her close prisoner therein, in the same way and manner that the said Jerviswood was ordered to be kept, in every respect, until the, until the council further order, as they will be answerable at their highest peril. End quote. Footnote. Decrees of Privy Council. End footnote. To these restrictions Lady Graydon gladly submitted, that she might minister to the comfort of her friend. Over his sick bed she watched with the most affectionate and assiduous care, administering to him those comforts which his situation required, and nothing which warm sympathy and overflowing kindness could suggest was wanting to alleviate his distress. Lady Jervis would, though unable, as we have said, from the delicate state of her health, to undertake the entire charge of attending him, she was desirous of being occasionally allowed to visit him. She accordingly presented a petition to the Privy Council praying that this favor might be granted her, and the Council at their meeting on the 18th of August, quote, allow her to have access to her husband with any of the physicians who are to visit him, and to stay in the room with him so long as the physicians stay and no longer, during which she during which stay she is not to utter or speak anything but in audience of the physicians present. End quote. Footnote. Register of Acts of Privy Council. End footnote. It would appear that some short time after she was allowed to remain constantly with him in the prison subject to the same stringent rules as her sister, Lady Graydon, though this permission continued only for a brief, brief period. Footnote. On the 30th of August, the Council also allowed Bailey's advocates and friends to have free access to him until Thursday, and granted warrants to the keepers of the toll booth for that effect, 
they being always answerable for the safe custody of his person. Register of Acts of Privy Council. End footnote. While thus enjoying the society of his wife and of his sister-in-law, the cup of Bailey's affliction was greatly sweetened. Not only was his every wish anticipated and his sickness alleviated by the gentle language and engaging offices of love, but his intercourse with these beloved friends was, from the congeniality of their minds, sanctified and endeared by religion, in which all of them sought and found their greatest enjoyment and their most effectual solace under all their afflictions. His confinement and sickness were thus deprived of more than half of their bitterness, and surrounded by his nearest and best-loved relations, he felt that his prison was in some measure like home. But his sister-in-law had not been with him much above three weeks, and his lady not so long, when the Privy Council issued orders for their being removed from him. The Act of Council is as follows, quote, Edinburgh, 10th September, 1684. Whereas the Lords of His Majesty's Privy Council were formerly pleased to allow Mr. Robert Bailey of Jerviswood's wife and the Lady Graydon to be close prisoners in the room with him, he being then under some indisposition of body, they have now thought it fit that they be removed from him and he continued close prisoner by himself as formerly, and therefore do hereby require the keepers of the tollbooth of Edinburgh forthwith to remove the said Lady Jerviswood and the Lady Graydon forth out of the room where they are now close prisoners with the said Jerviswood, and to keep him close prisoner and not to suffer them or any other person to have access to or converse with or speak to him till further order as they will be answerable. End quote. Footnote. Register of Acts of Privy Council. End footnote. On the removal of these dear friends, Bailey continued alone in prison for nearly two months. His recovery had been very partial, and from the want of their kind attentions, and as the cold weather set in, his bodily illness greatly increased, and assumed so dangerous a form as to render it indispensable for him to have a constant attendant. His own lady would again willingly have shared in his imprisonment and ministered to him, but the infirm state of her health rendered it impossible for her to undergo the confinement and fatigue to which in the performance of such duties she would have been subjected. But her sister Lady Graydon was ready as cheerfully as ever to supply her place, should permission be granted her by the Privy Council. Accordingly, Lady Jerviswood presented a petition to the Council, quote, in name and behalf of her husband, showing that the Council was graciously pleased upon application made by the supplicant, to allow her sister, Lady Graydon, to wait upon her husband in regard of his dangerous and sick condition, and ever since her coming in, ever since her coming from him, no person is suffered to visit or speak to him, save the keeper that takes in his his necessaries, and therefore humbly supplicating that, in consideration of the premises, and of the supplicant's husband being so tender and unwell that he cannot rise from bed and of the coldness of the weather and other things that attend sickness and weakness, the counsel out of their clemency and tender compassion would allow the supplicant's sister or niece to attend him, the supplicant herself being so tender that she cannot. End quote. The Lords of Council, having considered this petition at their meeting on the 6th of November, quote, allow Helen Johnston, Lady Graydon, the petitioner's sister, 
to be made close prisoner with Jervis Wood for waiting on him, he being very valetudinary, the keepers of the toll booth being always answerable for their safe custody, and that the said lady shall not go out of the room where the said Jervis Wood is close prisoner without order from the council. End quote. Footnote. Register of Acts of Privy Council. End footnote. Lady Graydon now continued without intermission to attend him till his death, and not only by her presence did she relieve the tedious hours of his confinement, but consoled him under his sufferings by suggesting to his mind the promises and hopes of the gospel, and especially by reading to him from the book of God its divine lessons of instruction and comfort to which the dying martyr listened with that intensity of interest which the near prospect of death and eternity so powerfully tends to inspire. Nor, though those days and nights that she watched over him were in some respects days and nights of sadness, could she fail to be comforted and edified by the heavenly spirit which he displayed in witnessing the patience and joy with which he bore his afflictions in the certain hope of having them more than compensated by the eternal glories of a better world. Lady Graydon accompanied Bailey from the prison to the bar on the day of his trial, which was on the 23rd of December, and taking her place beside him, she watched over him during the whole of the trial, which lasted from 11 o'clock in the forenoon till past midnight. Quote, he was so unwell and weak, unquote, says Wadrow, quote, that when he was in the panel, footnote, that is, in the dock, or as panel at the bar, end footnote, his sister-in-law, Lady Graydon, behooved to be with him in the panel and gave him some cordial now and then to support him, end quote. Footnote, Rogers Analecta, Volume 3, page 78, end footnote. To the lengthened proceedings she would listen with painful and melancholy interest. Sir George Mackenzie's most bloody and severe speech to the jury, as Wadrow characterizes it, would doubtless create in her mind more poignant sensations than anything else she heard on that day. Nor can we well describe her feelings when he cast it up to Bailey as a reproach, what he felt to be and what really was an honor to him, that he was the nephew and son-in-law of her venerated father, Lord Warriston. The Lord Advocate's speech being concluded, and Bailey having spoken a few words, his great weakness rendering him unable to say much, the jury, it being then so late, were ordered to bring in their verdict tomorrow by nine o'clock, and the court dismissed. Lady Graydon accompanied him from the bar to the prison, where she still continued to watch over him and to minister to his comfort. But her assiduous and soothing attentions to him she had not now long to perform. On the following day, about ten o'clock, being brought from the prison to the bar of the Justiciary Court, he was sentenced to be hanged that day, December 24th, at the Market Cross of Edinburgh, between two and four o'clock in the afternoon, his head to be cut off and his body to be quartered, his head to be affixed upon the nether bow of Edinburgh, one leg to be affixed on the toll booth of Jedburgh, where the greatest part of his estate lay, another leg to be affixed on the toll booth of Lanark, near to which his house of Jerviswood lay, another member to be affixed on the toll booth of Ayr, and another on the toll booth of Glasgow, his name, fame, memory, and honors to be extinct, and his blood to be tainted, etc. Footnote, Roger of Analecta, Volume 3, pages 70 to 80. 
Wadrow's History, Volume 4, page 110. End footnote. It is highly probable that on that day, as on the day of the trial, Lady Graydon attended him to the court, and that with panting breast and bitter agony of spirit she heard the sentence of death pronounced upon him. She returned with him again to the prison, resolved to minister to his comfort as far as in her power to the last. The scene through which she had now to pass, as well as the scenes through which she had already passed, would have been too much for many female minds. Their fortitude would have abandoned them, and robbed of all power of acting, they would have resigned themselves to the dominion of uncontrollable anguish. It was different with Lady Graydon. On this trying occasion she was greatly supported. Her friend had now only a few hours to live. But it was solacing to her to witness his fortitude, resignation, and heavenly joy, to know that, though feeble in body, he was not infirm of soul, that no terror was upon it, that there was no faltering of his inward strength, but that his trust was firm in God. It afforded her satisfaction, though a painful satisfaction, to listen to the last prayers, so full of fervent devotion and of triumphant faith, that proceeded from his dying lips, and to hear him give expression to the heavenly rapture which filled his soul in prospect of entering eternity. Quote, when he was brought into the prison, after receiving his sentence, he fell over into the bed where he broke forth into a most wonderful prayer. He seemed to be in a rapture. There seemed to be a shining majesty in his face, the tears abundantly trickling down from his eyes. He spoke like one in heaven. He showed what great and wonderful joy would be at the meeting of the saints with the Lord and with one another. He said God had begun the good work in him. He had carried it on, and now he was putting the copestone upon it, and now he had received a wonderful cordial, that within a few hours he would be inexpressibly beyond conception well. He said in his prayer that he was to be made a sacrifice. He prayed it might be an acceptable sacrifice to God, and that his death might put a merciful stop to their cruel shedding of the blood of his people. End quote. Footnote, Wadrow's Analecta, Volume 3, pages 78 to 80. End footnote. To such utterances as these, she could not listen without being convinced that God was present with him of a truth, that the divine strength was made perfect in his weakness, and that he who now so mercifully sustained him would continue to sustain him to the end. The time appointed for Bailey's execution soon arrived. Owing to his sickness, he was carried in a chair to the scaffold. On coming out of the chair, he was so weak as to be unable without assistance to go up the ladder. He wore his nightgown. Lady Graydon accompanied him from the prison to the scaffold. On their way to it, they passed the house of her father, and in passing it, Bailey looked up to the chamber where Lord Warriston usually sat and a multitude of associations connected with the past vividly rushing into his mind, he said to her, quote, Many a sweet day and night with God had your now glorified Father in that chamber. End quote. Yes, she replied, and thinking of his cruel death, she added, quote, Now he is beyond the reach of all suffering, equally free from sin and sorrow, and the same grace which supported him is able to support you. End quote. She went up with him to the scaffold and stood by him while he attempted to address the crowd of spectators, which he no sooner began to do, quote, 
my faint zeal for the Protestant religion has brought me to this end. End quote. Then he was interrupted by the beating of the drums, after which he made no further attempt to speak. Previous to his engaging in prayer and being thrown over, she took her last farewell of him, which struck to the innermost feelings of her soul, as with the hand of death. The last adieu of a dying friend, even when he dies upon his bed, though gratifying, is always painful, agonizing to the survivors. But when his death is tragical and outwardly ignominious, the final parting is still more overwhelming to the feelings. After Bailey had been thrown over, Lady Graydon had still another duty to perform to him. She knew that the very dust of God's saints is precious in his sight, that their bodies continue to be the objects of his incessant care, and in the faith of this and in imitation of God, she exercised an anxious care over the body of her friend, after the emancipated spirit had ascended from it to the throne of God to receive the crown of immortal life. Quote, with a, with a more than masculine courage, end quote, as Fountain Hall justly observes, she continued on the scaffold not only till Bailey was executed, but till she saw the hangman quarter his body. She also went with the hangman to see the pieces oiled and tarred, and she took them and wrapped each up in a linen cloth, after which they were thrown into the thieves' hole before being dispersed to the respective places where they were to be exhibited as a public spectacle. Footnote, Fountain Hall's Historical Notices, Volume 2, page 595, Wadros Analecta, Volume 3, pages 70 to 80. End footnote. The affliction of Lady Jerviswood, who, while all this was going on, was confined to her chamber, was great. Nor did the government show much sympathy for her lacerated feelings. The night after her husband was hanged and quartered, they placed a guard of soldiers at her door so that a gentleman who had received from him a paper for her could hardly get access to deliver it to her. Their object in placing the old soldiers at her door was to get from her his dying speech with the matter of which they were extremely offended, and the circulation of which they were anxious to suppress. She gave them a copy of the speech upon which the soldiers were removed. The idea of his members being dispersed throughout the country and exhibited to public view was peculiarly distressing to her feelings, and she petitioned the Privy Council to permit them to be buried. The council was too heartless to grant her request from sentiments of humanity, but not altogether insensible to public odium. They would willingly have given her his members for interment could she have called in and suppressed all copies of his speech, which was so much calculated to recreate in the public mind sympathy for the martyr and indignation against the bloody men who murdered him. This, however, she very probably could not do several copies of it having been written out and circulated, and accordingly her petition was rejected. The king was also petitioned to the same effect, but, little susceptible of humane emotions and too much engrossed with his vicious pleasures to lend a favorable ear to a widow's plaint, he also refused to grant her desire. Quote, I am a king, and wherefore should the clamorous voice of woe intrude upon mine ears? End quote. Little did he know, alas, that before six weeks elapsed, he would be smitten by the relentless hand of death in the midst of his debaucheries, and summoned to give in his account before the judge of all. 
The mutilated members of the martyr lay in the thieves' hole about twenty days till the rats were like to fall upon them, after which they were sent to the several places on the tollbooth to which they were to be fixed according to the sentence, and there it would seem they continued till the revolution, when it is probable the conscience-stricken persecutors, dreading retaliation from the persecuted Presbyterians, upon the introduction of a new order of things, took them down as they took down the heads, arms, and legs of other martyrs, which with equal barbarity they had exposed upon the gates of the capital and on the tollbooths of the principal towns. Footnote. Fountain Hall's Historical Notices, Volume 2, page 595. Wadros Analecta, Volume 3, page 78 to 80. End footnote. Of Lady Graydon, we meet with no additional notices during the persecution. She, however, lived to see the Stuarts expelled from the British throne and to rejoice in the deliverance which was effected by the Prince of Orange. She also saw the descendants of Bailey raised to situations of high honor and trust under the new government, and what was still better, adorning their high stations by the Christian virtues which distinguished their martyred father and proving public blessings to their country in their day and generation. She died in Edinburgh previous to the 11th of September, 1707. Footnote The testament, dative, and inventory of the debts and sums of money pertaining and indebted to Umquhill Helen Johnston, relict of the deceased Mr. George Holm of Graydon, the time of her decease, who deceased within the city of Edinburgh, is registered 11 September 1707. Commissary Records of Edinburgh. End footnote. Lydia's Dunbar, Mrs. Campbell. During the persecution, the adherents of presbytery, though most numerous in the south and west of Scotland, were scattered more or less numerously over the northern countries. Even so far as Moray-Shire, and in some of the neighboring shires, not a few of them were to be found. The gospel had been preached in these remote parts with considerable success by Mr. Robert Bruce, Mr. David Dixon, and other ministers who had been banished thither by James VI or by the High Commission Court for their opposition to the introduction of prelacy, and the fruits of the introductions of these eminent men remained even to the persecuting times. The labors of several very worthy ministers who were settled in these localities previous to the Restoration, but who shortly after that era were ejected from their charges, had also been accompanied during their incumbency with no small measure of success, and some of them, as Mr. Thomas Hogg, Mr. John McGilligan, and Mr. Thomas Ross continued to preach publicly after their rejection with evident tokens of divine blessing. Many who had profited under their pastoral care and who sympathized with them in the cause in which they suffered no doubt went to the parish churches to hear the curates, but while they did so they were secretly hostile to prelacy, and a considerable number of them desisted altogether from waiting on the ministry of the conforming clergy. Nor was it the poor and the more illiterate, but the more wealthy and the best educated of the population, several of them proprietors of the soil, who favored the Presbyterian cause. So strong a conviction had the government been led to form of the Presbyterian leanings of the people in Moray-Shire as to suspect that a considerable portion of them had actually joined with the Covenanters at Bothwell Bridge or supported them with money, horses, arms, or provisions, 
Although, after the strictest inquiry made by the commissioners of the Privy Council who met at Elgin in the beginning of the year 1685, no evidence of this was brought out. The government had also been led to believe that some of the leading men among them had, from favor to the Covenanters, employed a stratagem to prevent the heritors and militia from going out to assist the king's forces in putting down the insurrection at Bothwell Bridge at the very time when they were convening for that purpose. A fiery cross had been carried through the Shire of Moray, avowedly to raise the inhabitants to defend themselves against the Macdonalds, who, it was given out, were about to invade them. But the friends of the government alleged that this was a mere pretext, maintaining that the Macdonalds were at a distance and had no such hostile intention, and that the real object of the mission of the fiery cross was to keep the heritors and militia from going out to join the king's host by creating an apprehension that their presence was necessary at home for the protection of their own bounds. So favorably inclined were some of the most respectable and wealthy in that part of the country to the Presbyterian interest, and so desirous were they of enjoying the pastoral instruction and superintendence of ministers of that persuasion, that they came to the resolution of using means for obtaining from the government the extension of the indulgence which had been granted in the south to Morayshire, and appointed two of their numbers, Sir Hugh Campbell of Calder and Thomas Dunbar of Grange, to go to Edinburgh upon this matter, authorizing them to act therein according to their own discretion. Finding on their arrival at Edinburgh that there was no prospect of their proposal being favorably listened to by the government, there being then every appearance that the indulgence granted in the South would be withdrawn, these two commissioners did not move in the business at all. Among the secret or avowed friends of the persecuted cause of nonconformity in Moray and the neighboring shires were several ladies of respectable rank and of distinguished piety, among whom may be enumerated the lady of Sir Hugh Campbell of Calder, Lady Duffus, Lady Kilrabach, Lady Muirtown, Lady Innes, and others. The lady of whom we now propose to give some account, though respectably connected, was of humbler rank than the ladies now mentioned. But she was in some respects superior to any of them, not, it may be, on the score of piety, yet in regard to her enlightened and resolute adherence to Presbyterian principles. She has left behind her a diary. Footnote. This diary was printed for the first time in the Religious Monitor and Evangelical Repository for 1832, an American periodical publication. It is preceded by a short biographical notice of the authoress, written by Reverend James Calder, Minister of Croy, her grandson. Of this diary, ample use is made in the present memoir, and my best acknowledgments are due to the Reverend Thomas Goodwillie Barnett, State of Vermont, United States of America, who kindly transmitted to me a copy of the several numbers of the periodical in which it is contained. I am also under obligations to the Reverend John Russell, Stamford, Canada West, to whom the manuscript from which the diary was printed belongs, for some interesting notices of the descendants of one of Mrs. Campbell's daughters, which the reader will find in the close of this sketch. Mr. Russell inherited this manuscript from his mother-in-law, the wife of the Reverend Henry Clark of Boghole, and great-granddaughter of Mrs. Campbell. And though not the original, it is a transcript either from it or from a correct copy. 
The Reverend James Calder, says he, informs us in his preface that he had the diary transcribed under his own eye from the original. My mother-in-law, Mrs. Clark of Bogdale, borrowed either the original or, more probably, that copy from her uncle and transcribed the whole of it in a very plain good hand. This copy is now in our possession. Some years ago, through urgent importunity, we permitted it to be taken to the Reverend Alexander Gordon, late of New York, that it might be published in the, in the religious monitor, and when in type, a few extra copies were struck off for gratuitous distribution among acquaintances in America friendly to the Reformation in Scotland. End footnote. She has left behind her a diary, which, though consisting chiefly of a record of her religious exercise and experience, is very interesting and instructive. It breathes throughout a spirit of ardent piety. It displays an extensive acquaintance with the scriptures and is remarkable for the judiciousness of the sentiment, untinctured by extravagance or enthusiasm, as well as for the elegant simplicity of the style, the age in which it was written being considered, from which it is evident that she was a woman of superior mind and that her piety was as enlightened as it was ardent. Lilius Dunbar, the only daughter of Mr. Dunbar of Boggs by his wife, Christian Campbell, daughter to Sir John Campbell, fifth knight of Calder. She was born about the year 1657. When very young, she had the misfortune to be deprived of both her parents by death, after which she was for some time brought up by her cousin, Sir Hugh Campbell, who succeeded her grandfather as the nearest male heir of the family of Calder, she was next taken into the family of her cousin German, the, the pious Lady Duffus, who acted toward her the part not merely of a kind friend, but of an indulgent mother, for twelve years, and for whom she felt all the tenderness of an affectionate daughter. Though favored with a religious education, she did not feel even common serious impressions till she had nearly reached the seventeenth year of her age, when she became dangerously ill of the smallpox. Footnote. This was in the year 1674, end footnote, in the family of Lord Duffus at Elgin. She acknowledges that before this she had no religion, though education and good company had sufficient influence on her conscience to keep her from hating and reproaching the godly, and though she was kept from gross outward sins. Under this sickness, her conscience being awakened, she vowed, she vowed that should God in his providence recover her, she would strive to be his servant and having notwithstanding her previous thoughtlessness about religion, been convinced that the non-conforming ministers far surpassed the conforming in spirituality of character, as well as in their success in turning sinners to God, and in building up saints, she also resolved to embrace such opportunities as offered of hearing them preach. This, and not that intelligent acquaintance with the important principles for which they were suffering, which she afterward attained, was the reason why she purposed to attend their ministry. Quote, At that time, unquote, says she, quote, I did not truly perceive how much it was my duty to take heed whom I heard and to consider them who were my ministers and to follow their faith, looking to the end of their conversation and to mark them that make divisions and turn aside for reward. Neither did I understand that there was so much of popery and will-worship in episcopacy as truly there is. Neither did I know 
that the Presbyterians' laying down of life and liberty was for such a weighty matter as owning Jesus Christ in his kingly office. The end for which I intended to hear Presbyterian ministers preach was because I heard and saw that the Lord had blessed their labors to many, and souls were getting good by them. End quote. On her recovery from this sickness, she went again to Calder, whence she had come to Elgin, and there being at that time in Calder several godly ministers, Mr. Thomas Ross, Mr. Thomas Hogg, and Mr. James Urquhart, she had an opportunity of attending their ministry, which she highly prized. Still, she confesses that, quote, the getting of Christ and a new heart was not her first desire, but to get something in herself to answer God's goodness with, and to get and embrace the means of salvation, unquote, that she, quote, wanted Christ and a new heart days and years after this, even until she saw herself miserable without Christ, and glad to sell all in her and without her to get that enriching pearl, end quote and that though she aimed at serving the Lord and seeking her righteousness, she sought it long in herself before she attained to that which cometh by faith in Jesus Christ. The first two Sabbaths after her coming to Calder, she went to the old town of Kilrake, where Mr. Thomas Ross then dwelt, and heard him preach. Under the sermons of this holy man, she felt her affections grow warm with zeal for God and love to Mr. Ross's hearers, and her heart inspired with the great greater fear of committing sin than she had formerly experienced. But though more delighted with sitting under his ministry than ever she had been with hearing any of the prolatic persuasion, yet from the fear of giving offense to several persons whom she loved, she went next Sabbath to hear Mr. Donald McPherson, the incumbent of the parish of Calder. Quote, I got no good, unquote, says she, quote, there, but rather evil. What I heard had no impression on my affections or memory. It was a dead sound to me. Neither did I discern so much as reverence to God among the people I saw there. I was even ensnared by the carnal carriage and discourse of that congregation. End quote. From this she found that the word of God proved profitable to the hearers only when preached by those who walk uprightly, and that when it is otherwise, God's holy name is profaned by the speaker and the word preached tends to harden the hearts of the hearers. Having derived no benefit from hearing Mr. McPherson preach on the Sabbath referred to, nor during the three years in which previous to this she had attended his ministry, while the hearing of Mr. Thomas Ross begat in her a desire after God, she resolved to wait on the pure preaching of the word, so long as such an opportunity was within her reach, and from that time she continued to hear Mr. Ross, under whose pulpit instruction she profited, quote, in head knowledge, in formality of duties, and in outward zeal, end quote. Half a year after this, she went to Elgin to visit Lady Duffus, and contrary to her intention, was kept there over Sabbath. On Saturday, it was distressing to her to think of going on the morrow to hear the bishop, footnote, Mr. Murdoch Mackenzie, end footnote, for having been his hearer half a year before, she knew the unedifying and fruitless character of his sermons. But there being no motive inducing her to go except the fear of man, and persuaded that it is better to offend man than God, she stayed at home on the Sabbath, for which she met with censure and reproach. Quote, from this, unquote, says she, quote, I observed, first, that a natural conscience will move men to their duty, 
although they should suffer for doing the same, and yet be void of true love to God, and second, that it is good to walk according to one's light, both in his judgment and outward performance, although he have not yet attained to the right in the more weighty matter in the heart. It was love I had to my own soul that made me stay from that polluted ordinance, rather than to witness for God in my station against the evil of the times. End quote. After staying one Sabbath at Elgin, she returned to Calder, intending next spring to remove to Elgin and stay with Lady Duffus. There being at that time no Presbyterian ministers at Elgin, she was not a little perplexed as to whether she should attend the ministry of the bishop. The temptation suggested itself to her mind that many better than herself went to hear the Pilatic ministers, and that her non-compliance might be adverse to her worldly interest by giving offense to Lady Duffus and other members of the family. Influenced by such motives, she resolved, though without expressing her intention to anyone, to go with the crowd to hear the prelates and their curates on the Sabbath. When deprived of an opportunity to of hearing the Presbyterian ministers, becoming, however, soon after, convinced that it was sinful for her from the fear of reproach or of injuring her temporal interests, to take the example of a few persons for her rule, and acting upon this conviction, she entirely left off hearing the prelatic incumbents. In 1677, she suffered a heavy affliction in the loss of Lady Duffus, who died on the 16th of April that year. About a fortnight after the death of this kind benefactor, she gave up the charge she had in the family and came out in the evening without a creature to comfort her and without knowing where her next residence would be. Under this bereavement, she sought consolation in religion, and it was her own belief that the date of her first becoming a genuine believer in Christ was about a fortnight after that event. This appears from the following entry in her diary. Quote, Elgin, May 1st, 1677. The Lord, who is the Almighty, by his power made my soul to close with the Lord Jesus, wholly on the terms that the gospel holdeth forth. And the Lord himself gave me faith to believe in Jesus Christ, that he was my Savior, which I could never attain before that time on good grounds. On that blessed morning to me, I got the Rock of Ages to be my support and I got Christ Jesus to be to me the end of the law for righteousness, to comfort me inwardly under my disconsolate condition outwardly. For it was but fifteen days after the death of my Lady Duffus, who was in place of my parents and all my relations to me. Now I cannot pass by without observing the wisdom and goodness of God to me in choosing that day and time for my deliverance out of the hands of all mine enemies, that I might serve him without fear. It was the time wherein I was most desolate. I was deprived of my parents by death and had not the expectation of other means to supply my wants. It was then I was deprived of the only person in the world who took care of me when it pleased the wise Lord by death to put a separation betwixt my Lady Duffus and me, who died April 16, 1677. Then it was that the gracious God who delights in showing mercy did enlarge my heart and made me to take hold of him who is the pearl of great price, in whom all fullness dwells. End quote. In another place, after speaking of her great affection to Lady Duffus and the loss she sustained by her death, she says, quote, Truly, I think nothing less than deliverance out of soul troubles 
and the love of Christ could make me overcome the loss of her who was all who was my all in the world. My pleasure, honor, and riches were all in her, but how soon was all this laid in the dust to me? Yet praises forever be to him who did it, so that we both were gainers. She hath passed from the valley of misery, and as she herself said at her death, hath gotten the palm tree in her hand, and now she walks with the lamb in white. As for my part, for brass I have gotten gold, for a fading flower I have gotten the noble plant of renown, who is the brightness of the Father's glory, and the express image of his person, him who was dead and is alive, and lives forevermore, him from whom death shall not be able to separate me, for he shall be with me when I go through the dark valley, so that I shall fear no evil. He shall present me spotless to the Father, in that place where there is no sin, no sorrow, no sickness, no death where I shall behold his face with joy, and where there are durable riches and everlasting pleasures. End quote. In those days of primitive simplicity and great religious fervor, it was more customary than in our day for Christians in order to have their religious experiences tested, to communicate them to godly ministers who were supposed to be skilled in distinguishing the genuine work of God's Spirit from counterfeit or spurious marks of grace. Of this, besides other instances which occur in the diary of the subject of this sketch, we meet with an example in the account of which she gives of a visit she made in 1677 to Mr. Thomas Ross, who was then a prisoner in Tain. Quote, One part of my errand, says she, unquote, says she quote, was to inform him of my condition and to be tried by him that if I was right, I might be the more confirmed and that my good Lord might get praise for his goodness and for his wonderful works to me. End quote. She was accompanied by an intimate friend, a young woman named Jean Taylor, who also had a desire to see Mr. Ross, who had previously been the instrument of good to her soul. On coming to Tain, they found the good man sickly, yet he spent the time with them in very edifying discourse and in explaining to them several passages of scripture about which they desired to be informed. Quote, We found much of the presence of God in his company, says she, and our hearts open to one another to tell of the goodness of God to our souls. Being with him alone next morning, I told him all the particular steps I could remember of my soul exercises. Since I was taken from being his hearer in the old town of Kilrake, which was two years before that time. When I told him of my soul trouble and began to tell him of my deliverance and the loving kindness of the Lord to me, how my will was broken and faith wrought and Christ Jesus manifested to me, our souls were filled with the joy of the Lord. Mr. Ross wept for joy, and I was so filled with the sense and feeling of the wonderful power of God and his love to my soul in Jesus Christ that I was put to silence for a while and could not get expressions to vent the ocean of his love. End quote. She returned from, Na- from Tain to Moines, where she stayed some weeks with Mrs. Donald Campbell, whose kindness to her she gratefully records, and to whom she had freedom in communicating her Christian experience, that lady, that lady being one, as she observes, that had tasted that the Lord was gracious. Shortly after, she went to service to Lady Innes Younger, who was residing at Dipple. All these changes strongly affected her mind, 
Writing in July 1677, she says, quote, Lady Innes Younger sent for me to Moines to go home to her service to Dipple, upon which I had deep impressions on my spirit of being desolate, an orphan, having neither father nor mother, and those who supplied their room to me were taken from me, first my aunt, lady to the master of Forbes, and soon after my lady Duffus, her daughter, who was indeed a mother to me for twelve years. My love to her did exceed its, tr- its due bounds. My expectations from her and my fears of being deprived of her were both great. Quote. In the family of Lady Innes she was, however, very comfortable. Of that lady she speaks in the highest terms. Quote, she whom I was serving was a real seeker of God and zealous for the truth, a wise, reserved woman, easy to be served, of a pleasant, natural temper. I never got an angry word from her. Her regret would be that I was not so well with her as she would desire, and my complaint was that my service done her was so small. End quote. During the time of her residence in that family, she enjoyed much spiritual comfort. Quote, I stayed a year with her, which was a blessed time to my soul, such as I have not had the like. That was the year wherein I was taken up to Mount Pisgah, and made to view the promised land and the deed of the grapes of Eshkol, even the first fruits of that land, that is the glory of all lands. The first month I was at Dippel, I was made to read my own name in the book of election, by finding the Spirit of God in His Word bearing witness with my spirit that I was His. I was made to consider what my case was the year before, how the threatenings of the Word of God were a terror to me because I found myself guilty, the avenger of blood pursuing an eye without the city of refuge. I found my conscience condemning me so that I bore the sentence of death in my breast. I was encompassed about with fears in my greatest prosperity. Then I was made to wonder and rejoice at the blessed change I felt wrought in my soul. Faith where there was unbelief, light where there was darkness, hope where there was fear. I was made to find the enmity that was in me taken away, and God in Christ become my friend. End quote. In the summer of 1679, in the 22nd year of her age, she was married to Mr. Alexander Campbell of Torwich, a young gentleman descended like herself from the family of Calder. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, 
Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.